everybody. Welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. We've got a lot of legal and political news for you. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson. I'm joined by the show's producer and co-host, Joe Armstrong. And today we are going to talk about the news that a grand jury has delivered indictments for the four officers who were involved in the death of George Floyd. We're going to talk about Florida's new restrictive voting law and what it could mean for federal voting protections. We're going to talk about Facebook's decision as to whether or not President Trump will be temporarily or permanently suspended from that social media platform. And then we're going to wrap up with fake vaccine cards. And actually, I have one topic I'd like to discuss with Joe. I have not prepared him for it, but I think it will be fun. Joe, welcome. Hey, Jessica, we are live without a net this time. Unless you've been living in a cave for the last year, it would be hard to have missed the story of the killing of George Floyd last May 25th. Floyd allegedly used a counterfeit $20 bill at a Minneapolis convenience store, after which the police were called. A now former officer, Derek Chauvin, detained Floyd and knelt on his neck for over nine minutes, during which Floyd lost consciousness and died. Floyd's death sparked several months of protests in cities across America last summer, some of which turned violent. A jury found Chauvin guilty of second-degree unintentional murder, unintentional third-degree murder, and unintentional second-degree manslaughter just a few weeks ago on April 20th. We brought you an episode of a Passing Judgment with USA Today reporter Tammy Abdullah, who was in the courtroom in Minneapolis during that trial to report on those convictions on the very day they happened. Now, we are discussing this again today because there were other police officers involved that day in May of 2020, and four of them have now been indicted by a federal grand jury in relation to the death of George Floyd. The details of the indictment include the following. First, Derek Chauvin is indicted for depriving Floyd the right to be free from unreasonable seizure, which includes the right to be free from the use of unreasonable force by a police officer. Two more officers, Toe Tao and J. Alexander King, were indicted for failing to intervene when Chauvin used unreasonable force. And a fourth officer, Thomas Lane, was indicted along with the other three for failing to provide medical aid for George Floyd. Chauvin himself was also indicted in an unrelated incident from September of 2017 when he allegedly used unreasonable force on a 14-year-old Minneapolis boy. So, Jessica, now that they've been indicted by a grand jury, what happens now, legally speaking? So what happens now is that federal prosecutors can go forward with their case. Uh, A grand jury has said there's probable cause to believe that these people committed a crime. And as you said, what are the crimes here? We're talking about violations of Floyd's constitutional rights. You talked about Chauvin, what he has been indicted for. Those are Fourth Amendment violations. An unreasonable seizure is a Fourth Amendment violation. Two of the other officers, again, indicted with a failure to intervene, and all four of them with failure to give medical aid. So at this point, the federal prosecutors are going to talk to the former officer's defense attorneys and say, look, if there is an offer on the table, here's the offer. And if not, then I expect that these cases could go to trial. Now, let's remember that these aren't the only cases dealing with these federal officers. The other three, meaning the other three former officers, not including Derek Chauvin, are also facing state charges for aiding and abetting second-degree murder and aiding and abetting second-degree manslaughter. 
they've all pled not guilty. And those trials, that trial, I think it's going to be all one is expected to happen over the summer. And then separate from that, there's also a federal investigation into Minneapolis's police practices, whether or not there is a practice and pattern of discrimination. That's something that we've talked about when we talked about the Department of Justice under new Attorney General Merrick Garland. So what we're focusing on today is the news, the recent news, that all four officers are now facing federal criminal indictment for violation of Floyd's constitutional rights. But let's also remember that the other three are facing state criminal charges and that the police department is facing a federal investigation into practice and procedures that might have a pattern of discrimination. So a lot of legal things to continue to watch out of this tragedy and um, including this police department more generally. Right. All of those are ongoing stories. We will keep you abreast of them as they develop. But let's move on to some voting restriction laws. We talked on this very podcast about Georgia's voting restriction laws recently. Well, Florida is getting in on the act. So uh, what we have here, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed into law a bill with an array of new voting restrictions. The law passed Florida's legislature without a single Democratic vote. This makes Florida the latest in a number of Republican-controlled states like Georgia, Montana, and Iowa to impose new obstructions to voting. Texas, Arizona, Michigan, and Ohio are also working on similar restrictions in their respective states. Now, it seems to me Republicans are leveraging Donald Trump's big lie that he won the 2020 election instead of current President Joe Biden to restrict voting access. Now, what does this new Florida law have in its uh, nitty-gritty here? New restrictions on Dropbox collection of votes. Dropboxes must be supervised. Dropboxes will only be available while voting sites are open. There are some new requirements for voter registration changes. The no influence zone, which is the zone in which you can't campaign or wear t-shirts and that sort of thing, around polling stations has been increased to 150 feet. And going forward, elections officials will have to let candidates and some observers witness some critical elements of the ballot handling process on election night. So, Jessica, I know that there have already been some challenges filed against this new Florida voting restrictions law. What do you think is going to happen here? Uh, a couple of things are going to happen. And I think what you did so well as you really situated this in the larger context of Florida is not a one-off, everybody. We've talked about the new restrictive voting laws in Georgia. You just mentioned that there are other states where we're on the precipice of new restrictive voting laws. I think there are more than 330 bills in states throughout the country that are pending dealing with doing things like you know, increasing voter ID requirements, making it harder to get absentee ballots, limiting early voting time, uh, limiting drop boxes, basically eliminating all the, or limiting the ways that we can make it easier for more people to vote. And again, I wish I wasn't gonna say the sentence for what, the 18th time on the podcast, but these laws disproportionately affect certain voters and by certain voters, we typically mean Democrats. And it is just not a coincidence that these restrictive voting laws are almost exclusively being proposed by Republicans. And it's a way to try and maintain power when demographics are shifting. And if you look at the demographics of the Republican Party and who members of that party are, um, this, I think, is 
the way that they can try and keep power. And I know, again, it's going to sound like a partisan statement. Everybody, I'm actually not making any statements about political philosophy. What I'm making statements about is which party is proposing restrictive voting laws? So you asked me, you know, what's going to feel to the listeners like 30 hours ago, what's going to happen? So there will be challenges, just like there will be in Georgia to this voting law. So what will the challenges be? On the constitutional level, I think the challenges will be that there are either First Amendment associational violations or 14th Amendment equal protection violations. And then there will be allegations that the voting laws violate what's left of the Voting Rights Act. I think the really important thing for people to think about is that our current federal protections might not be enough. Joe, you and I have talked about this. In 2013, the Supreme Court gutted half of the Voting Rights Act. I'm not going to retread the whole Shelby County decision today, but it really is time for new federal protection. We need that safety net. 330 bills pending in states throughout the country. We need that federal protection to ensure that people can vote regardless of where they live, what their background is, and what their partisan affiliation is. All right, Jessica, speaking of federal voting protections, you recently wrote about something called jurisdiction splitting as a way of, to solve some of these problems here. Can you please tell us what that is exactly? Yes. So I wrote about this in MSNBC, and essentially under Article 3 of the Constitution, which specifically talks about Congress making exceptions and regulations to the ability of the Supreme Court to hear certain cases, Congress could carve out in this new piece of federal legislation that I think we need for voting protection, Congress could carve out and say, Supreme Court, you don't get to hear this case. So that's called jurisdiction stripping. We would strip the Supreme Court of their ability to weigh in on a challenge to this new legislation. Now, Congress can only do this with respect to the Supreme Court's appellate jurisdiction, not their original jurisdiction, which we can talk about maybe in more depth another time. But basically what would happen is Congress in this voting law would say, and a challenge to this law will not be heard by the Supreme Court per our Article Three power again, to make exceptions and regulations to the ability of the Supreme Court to hear certain cases. Now, this is not a perfect solution because we can think about how lawmakers could then try and insulate other laws, laws that we might think actually embrace good public policy from Supreme Court review. So we really, I think, need to use this little used option very, very sparingly. The reason that I advocated for its use in this case is because voting rights is a fundamental right. It's like the blueprint right to our country. And so when you think about other laws that we might think are good policy, gun control laws, laws dealing with environmental protections, um, laws dealing with uh, health care, all of those laws are built upon the idea that we have a truly representative democracy and that 
We can elect the candidates of our choosing, that our right to vote is not suppressed, that we're not discriminated against as voters. And so I think in this one situation, when it deals with our ability to have elected officials who are in fact accountable, then jurisdiction stripping does make sense. It's, again, it's not a perfect solution, but there are also some separation of powers concerns that I would worry about because it's Congress reaching in and telling the judicial branch, no, you can't do this. Um, but on the whole, I think it's, it's the right move in this specific situation. We will keep an eye on that as well to see if that's a stopgap to these new voting restriction measures in various states. So let's move on. This next story is a doozy. It involves the former president, Donald Trump, and Facebook's decision to ban him from their platform in the aftermath of the January 6th insurrection. So how does this go? Last week, Facebook's oversight board determined that the social media behemoths should continue for the time being, and that's the key bit here, to suspend former President Donald Trump's account in the aftermath of that insurrection we talked about at the U.S. Capitol. At the time, Facebook said that Trump violated its rules for users about praising violence, and they suspended his account. But, and this is a very big but, that oversight board also criticized Facebook for Trump's indefinite suspension and asked Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg and company to clarify its rules and determine if suspensions like Trump's are a permanent ban or if a specific time frame for suspensions is necessitated. To put that another way, Facebook needs to determine if Trump is gone from the platform forever or if they need to determine the length of his timeout if in fact it is temporary. In essence, the Oversight Board brought public attention to something that critics of Facebook have been saying for some time, which is that Facebook enforced its own rules in an arbitrary manner. I've witnessed this myself, Jessica, with some of my more vocal Facebook friends, repeated 30-day bans from the Facebook platform. They get put in Facebook jail and they're sprung later, and then it seems to me before long they're right back again. Now, in an interview with Axios, Oversight Board member, former Danish Prime Minister Hella Thorning-Schmidt said, quote, what we are telling Facebook is that they can't invent penalties as they go along. They have to stick to their own rules. Now, I admit that I find it amusing that this situation puts Donald Trump and some of his most vehement critics on social media on the same side when it comes to Facebook and censorship. Now, the board also recommended that Facebook should act more swiftly when users break the rules, whether that user is a head of state or a plumber from Indianapolis. The board also called out Facebook for essentially abdicating its own responsibility to that very oversight board when it comes to the crucial decision of banning a media firebrand like Donald Trump. So, Jessica, I can't imagine that Trump will go quietly into the digital night. He doesn't do anything quietly. We all know that. Where does this story go from here? Well, I think that the oversight board said pretty clearly to Facebook, here's what you need to do. You have to clean up your rules and you have to apply them consistently. I mean, the oversight board was pretty merciless in just saying, yeah, these rules are a mess. They're not transparent. They're internally inconsistent. So that's kind of, you know, step number one. Step number two is, of course, deciding whether or not there'll be an indefinite suspension. And this is important for obvious reasons, because one, Donald Trump uses this as a platform to talk to people, but two, it's a huge fundraising juggernaut for former President Trump. And I think he knows that. And it's not good for a potential 2024 run if he doesn't have that Facebook platform. Now, for me, one of the kind of maddening things to come out of this news is that people with 
really huge social media platforms were saying this case should go to the Supreme Court. I can't believe the Facebook Oversight Board did this. Let's just all remember, everybody, something called state action. And Facebook is a private company. They can have their own rules and regulations, and with very few limitations, they can tell people, you're not part of our platform anymore. And that's what they might do here. Facebook is not a government actor, so we're not talking about a First Amendment violation. I mean, I saw so many tweets in Facebook posts about an alleged First Amendment violation kicking former President Trump off this platform. This is not an alleged First Amendment violation. Facebook is not a state actor. So obviously, we're going to be looking at the power of social media companies and uh, their political heft and legal implications for a long time. But that's a quick update on this particular story. Yeah, it seems like some people, Jessica, look at Facebook as a utility rather than a private company, and we're going to have to keep an eye on that. We're also working on a future episode on deplatforming, so we're going to have an exciting guest to talk to you about that before too terribly long. But let's talk about a local-ish story, at least a California story, which really has national implications because I'm sure California is not the only place this is happening. This is a story about fake vaccine cards because a California man was arrested last week in connection with selling fake vaccination cards out of a bar. Now, he was selling them at the Old Corner Saloon. That's in Clements, California. And for those of you not familiar with California geography, though I admit I had to look this one up myself, Clements is in San Joaquin County. That is in the northern reaches of California's central San Joaquin Valley. It's between Stockton and Sacramento. Even if you're not from California, if you eat produce in the wintertime elsewhere in America, likely you have eaten fruit grown in California's central San Joaquin Valley. The Associated Press first reported on this story last week on multiple visits to the location. Undercover agents from California's Department of Alcoholic Beverage Control witnessed the bogus vaccination cards being fabricated directly in front of them at the bar after being asked to write their names and dates of birth on sticky notes, which they then gave to the bar staff. Bar employees used different color pens to fill out false vaccination dates and information and then cut out and laminated the cards. The owner, one Mr. Todd Anderson, was arrested on May 4th. He was charged with forging government documents, identity theft, falsifying medical records, with a bonus charge of having a loaded and unregistered firearm on the premises. Authorities say that the internet is rife with counterfeit vaccine card sellers and fake DIY vaccination card instructions. Even online craft website Etsy has a bevy of them available. Now, not the site themselves. They're more of a, a store where you go to sell your stuff, so we shouldn't implicate Etsy in this. But speaking about Anderson and about falsifying cards more broadly, San Joaquin County DA Tori Verber Salazar issued a statement that said, quote, It is disheartening to have members in our community show flagrant disregard for public health in the middle of a pandemic. Distributing, falsifying, or purchasing fake COVID-19 vaccine cards is against the law and endangers yourself and those around you. So Jessica, maybe it's obvious, but why are people doing this? We recently shared an episode of Passing Judgment about vaccine passports with employment attorney Kevin Troutman. So practically speaking, what would a card like this get you? Uh, access and or the ability to keep doing your job or stay at your school. So 
First of all, let's just remind everybody, this is not, in fact, legal. And so what is this California man being charged with? And as an aside, Joe, I never thought you'd go this deep into the geography of where this happened, but I do appreciate it. So what's he being charged with? Identity theft, potentially of Pfizer, CVS, and the CDC, forging government documents, including wrongfully issuing government seals, uh, falsifying medical records, and then unrelated having a loaded unregistered handgun. So you asked me, what does it get you? And I said, access. Um, we talked about whether or not employers can make vaccines mandatory. School administrators, can they make vaccines mandatory? Uh, what about the restaurant owner? What about the airline company? Um, all of these people can potentially say, you want to continue working here? You want to continue going to school here? Uh, you want to come to this concert? Okay, let's see your card. And that's what it gets you. It gets you potentially access. Obviously, it goes without saying, this has very serious health and safety implications in addition to legal implications. And it is like the new fake ID. Uh, instead of getting a drink, you know, it gets you access to, again, any of those situations without a potentially life-saving um, vaccination. So what are we gonna do about this? Um, I think New York has done a slightly better job than other states in terms of having a more accessible database. So there have been discussions about you know, having something on your phone uh, that shows that in fact, it you know, taps into a state database and it shows, yes, I had my vaccination. That brings up certain issues, maybe privacy concerns, also the fact that not everybody has a phone. And so we need to make sure that we create rules so that everybody, even those without phones, can follow them. Um, so unfortunately, I think that this will not be the first iteration of this story. Now, Joe, in the intro, I said, and let's also talk about a topic that I did not tell you about originally. So let's do a quick lightning round. We're both Angelinos. I was born in Los Angeles. Uh, you moved to Los Angeles. We have a mayor, Eric Garcetti, who's now being talked about as the potential future ambassador to India. Joseph, does he stay or go? Should I stay or should I go? Thus says the Clash and that song that everybody knows so well. My high school band covered that song once upon a time. Does Garcetti stay or go? Wow, that's a good question because you figure from what I know about Mayor Garcetti, he is a climber. He is an ambitious man like most politicians are. So it's an odd choice because India is a long way from American politics, but getting those ambassadorships also help you climb the ladder. If I'm going to hedge my bets, I say he stays. Maybe he can have more of an influence on the national picture staying here, climbing up that political ladder. What do you say, Jessica? Should he stay or should he go? This is the most consistent thing that we talk about in LA politics now, which is, is the mayor going to serve out his term? So let's step back for a second. The first question was, will he run for president? And we started talking about that, what, the second he was elected to his uh, his current position. Will he run for president? Then he said, no, I'm not going to run for president. After Joe Biden was elected, the question is, will he be a member of the cabinet? And then Pete Buttigieg essentially got the job that people thought he might get, which is um, Secretary of Transportation. Okay, so then it looks like the mayor is going to stay. Next question now, will he be ambassador to India? And I I think he will go. I don't know if it will be this particular uh, position, but 
if you think about it, being the mayor of Los Angeles, while it seems powerful in the sense that you're a mayor of a major city, it's not a springboard. I mean, let's think back to past mayors. I don't think we can name a then somebody who became a governor, a senator, certainly nobody who became the president. Um, I think he knows that he needs to change things up and get a national or even international uh, platform in order to try and spring to the next thing. And as you said, he's young, he's ambitious, and I think he wants there to be a next thing. So super briefly, what would happen in LA if he does leave? Uh, there would be an interim mayor and the current president of the city council, Nuri Martinez, would become the interim mayor. And then what would happen is that the city council would decide either to appoint somebody, which I suspect that they would, or that we would have a special election. I don't think we're going to have a special election because the mayor's term is up in a little over a year. And so it would be costly. It would take a lot of resources. It would be low turnout. And I don't want to say for what, but I don't know if the juice is worth the squeeze, so to speak, on that. But there is a, I mean, people are already running in that election now. So if he leaves, there'll be this kind of election within an election for people jockeying before the city council to try and be named the next interim mayor. Uh, and then, of course, we'll have a mayoral election. Okay, last question. Uh we are Angelinos, but we also live in California, and our current governor is facing a recall. Well, we're going to do a fuller episode on this, but uh, it almost certainly the recall election of Governor Newsom will, in fact, be on the ballot in, I would say, late October, early November. Uh, there'll be two questions on the ballot. The first question, will we recall Governor Newsom? The second question, if people, if enough people vote yes, then who will our next governor be? Who is going to be on the ballot? We know it's uh, serial candidate John Cox, uh, who's run a number of times unsuccessfully in California, and I believe in other states as well, and uh, former reality TV star and former Olympian Caitlyn Jenner. Now, Joe... Does Governor Newsom survive this recall election? My gut check here, Jessica, is that he will survive this election, although I'm not sure his hand was entirely steady on the wheel. Uh, I think Californians, as well as I know them, may have a little bit more forgiveness on any official going through something as an upheaval as large as a pandemic. California's numbers are doing well. We got our vaccinations. You know, that program rollout in California was mature and fast and efficient in as much as anything from the government is mature, fast, and efficient. So my gut is that he will not be recalled. So Cox and Jenner will be relegated to a Wikipedia entry, perhaps. I don't know. What is your thought on this? I think no. I think absolutely no. In fact, that Governor Newsom will live to fight another day. Uh, news just this week is that California is facing a historic surplus and that uh, we will be, or many of us will be receiving surplus checks, basically our money coming back from the government. And look, there's just no better political advertisement. There's no better political moment for this to happen for Governor Newsom. Going into the recall, people will literally be getting checks from the government. That's fantastic for him. That fortune of a surplus 
will be great for his fortunes, terrible for the fortunes of John Cox and Caitlyn Jenner and whoever else decides to jump in. Um, so look, what do we have to watch for this recall? We have to watch the economy thus far. If we have a huge surplus and people are getting checks back from the government, that's a good thing for Governor Newsom. We have to watch the COVID numbers, as you said, and we have to make sure that kids are back in school and stay in school. That's a big issue for Governor Newsom. And look, this is a long way away in political time, but I do think the demographics, the current news indicate that Governor Newsom will continue to be our governor and that this recall could cost up to $400 million. And at the end of the day, uh, Governor Newsom will be our current and future governor. And thank you for indulging me with that lightning round of unprepared topics. Thank you to the listeners for staying with us. We love having these conversations with you. Please do rate, review, let us know how we're doing. As always, you can tweet me at Levinson Jessica, the podcast at Passing Judgment Pod. We're also on Instagram. Joe is on social media at In-Depth Day. And we wish everybody a very nice day. And I'm going to let Joe sign us off. As I always like to say, thank you to our listeners for your support. If you've got legal or political questions, we've got answers. So tune in again for the next episode of the Passing Judgment Podcast. Until next time, be well, and everybody, get vaccinated.